All right, well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Joshua chapter 2. We started looking at this series, looking at the mothers of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Some surprising names we find in the family tree of our Savior. Uh, We'll talk about why these names are so surprising in just a little bit. But first, let's look at Joshua chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 1 through 21. This is God's word. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, You also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your mother and father, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them on their way, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that your spirit would open our eyes to see Jesus in this remarkable story of Rahab and the spies. Uh, It's a messy story that speaks to messy hearts like ours. 
hearts that find forgiveness only in the blood of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, there's this story that C.S. Lewis uh, once told in a book called The Great Divorce. Uh, Lewis imagines in this book a field trip of sorts where people uh, in hell get on a bus and they take a trip to heaven. That's never going to happen, of course. It's just a story. Uh, But there's this scene in The Great Divorce between uh, this man that Lewis calls Big Man and another guy named Len. And this scene happens uh, once the bus arrives in heaven. Big man comes across Len in heaven, and he recognizes uh, Len from his life on earth. And Len, when he knew him on earth, was a murderer. Now remember, big man uh, has been in hell this whole time. Now he's in heaven, and he comes across Len, this murderer, in heaven. And big man takes that personally. He gets really mad. He's furious because he can't believe he's been in hell this whole time, and Len, the murderer, has been in heaven. Big man has been a decent guy, or so he thinks. He's been pretty good as far as he's concerned. He goes on and on about how he's played by the rules, how he's done everything right. He's worked hard for an honest living. Uh, He's treated everyone fairly. Not that he didn't have his faults, but he was a pretty decent guy, he thinks. And seeing this murderer in heaven, uh, it's shocking. It's disturbing to big man. I wonder if you could relate uh, to big man, just hearing that story play out. Uh, You don't think you're perfect, but you don't think you're the worst either. Or maybe you relate a little bit more to uh, Len in this story. It intrigues you because you find yourself more in Len the murderer's shoes. Maybe you've never murdered someone, uh, but you're under no illusions of ever having been a very decent person. You know you've blown it, and you're a little surprised to find Len the murderer in heaven in this story. Because you wonder if maybe there is a place for heaven, a place for you in a place like heaven looking back on the things you've done in your life. You wonder, maybe this is just something Lewis is making up, or maybe he's onto something. Maybe there's some hope uh, for sinners like you and me in this story. We'll come back to this idea, but uh, just to remind us of this series and what we're uh, talking about in this series for Advent, we're looking at mothers of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. These very interesting names that are included in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. You have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Why is this unexpected? Well, it's unexpected according to historical convention. Um, When tracing someone's lineage like Matthew does, ordinarily the male lineage would be traced, but here you find the inclusion uh, of these women in the genealogy. This is unusual uh, in this historical framework. It's also surprising because many of these women, uh, they're on the periphery of God's covenant people. They're not all Israelites necessarily. And several of them are women with uh, unsettling pasts and stories. Even Mary, this virgin with child, uh, drawing looks and whispers. But all of these women are mothers of Jesus, and we're studying them uh, during this Advent season to see Jesus in their stories. So we looked at the story of Tamar last week, and this week we look at Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute living in Jericho. An unexpected inclusion uh, in the line of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. It's unexpected, uh, but unexpected as though it may be, her scandalous life uh, really 
in the midst of all of that, we see an amazing expression of faith in Israel's God who saves. And it highlights for us the scandal of Christmas, the scandal of God's grace. Christmas isn't just for tidy people with neat lives and perfect pasts. Jesus came to seek and to save people you might want to Photoshop out of your Christmas card. Uh, For people you might not expect to see in the family tree of Jesus, or in heaven for that matter. Jesus came to save sinners, and that includes every single one of us. So what I want you to see in this story of Rahab and her life and her faith is this. No one is beyond the reach of God's mercy when you cling by faith to the God who saves. You are not beyond the reach of God's mercy when you cling by faith to the God who saves. We see two main things in this story about how Rahab, the prostitute living in Jericho, finds grace in the God who saves. We see that Rahab knows and believes God saves. That's the first thing. Rahab knows and believes God saves. Secondly, Rahab cries out for mercy to the God who saves. So let's look at this first thing together. First thing we see is Rahab knows and believes that God saves. Let's set the stage a little bit for hearing about what Rahab knows and believes. So we're in Jericho in this story. In due time, Israel will cross the Jordan and they will march around the walls of Jericho as the Lord has commanded them. They'll blow their trumpets and the walls will come tumbling down. That's how we all remember it from the children's song, right? Kids love that story. They love the song too. Uh, But this part of the story we're going to look at today doesn't usually make it into the children's storybook Bibles. Uh, We're looking at this woman who might ruffle our sensibilities if she came into this worship service. Uh, We're looking at this woman named Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute who seeks mercy from the Lord. So at this point in the story, before the battle, the spies have been sent into Canaan, two of them. Uh, They're supposed to do a little military reconnaissance. They're supposed to scope things out, especially Jericho, and then report back uh, to Joshua what they've seen. So let me read verse 1 again. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they're like, we're on it, Joshua. You can count on us. Verse goes on. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. That escalated a little quickly. It's a little strange, we have to admit. Of all the places these spies could have gone, they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stay there. The story doesn't elaborate any more on this. I've read some people try to make some respectable sense out of it in the commentaries, uh, but there is a lot of tension in this story right off the bat. The tension is so thick you can cut it with a knife. There's a lot in the Hebrew text, um, idioms, euphemisms, things of that sort that only crank this tension up even more. So what are we supposed to do with this? You see, the Bible doesn't sanitize the faults of God's people doesn't gloss them over, it doesn't sanitize them, any more than it sanitizes the stories of those far from the Lord and in need of mercy. Jew and Gentile alike need the mercy of Jesus. You and me and every sinner walking down the street needs God's grace. Everyone needs grace. Even God's redeemed people need grace. Whether you're a believer who's messed up or someone who still hasn't turned to Jesus, you need God's grace. And the good news of salvation in Jesus is for every single person in this room, even believers who mess up and do weird things like these spies. 
We never grow out of our need for the gospel of God's grace. So the spies, they clearly seem to be somewhere they don't belong, somewhere they shouldn't be, but Rahab covers for them uh, with the king of Jericho. The king tells her to turn them over. Where are the spies? And Rahab tells quite a tale covering for them, complete with some of that innuendo I mentioned that makes the story uh, even more tense, we could say. Um, we don't need to get into all of that, but this story is really something else, and it just highlights uh, just all, it makes it all the more interesting how Rahab is included in the family tree of Jesus and how the scandal of grace is for every single one of us. She lies, of course, about the spies' whereabouts. You've probably heard people go round and round and round on that one. Should you lie to hide someone in a time of war? Is that what Rahab is doing? Uh, what do we make of Rahab's lie? Uh, I love what one PCA pastor said about this in his commentary. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis said, it's tragic when people snag their pants on the nail of Rahab's lie and quibble endlessly about the matter and never get around to hearing Rahab's truth. That's so good because that's what this story is all about. It's not about Rahab's lie. That could be a discussion for another time. The story is all about Rahab's truth. In the New Testament, we do see that Rahab was acting in faith when she hid the spies. We're not really told if uh, it was an appropriate way to hide the spies, lying to the king. Uh, but that isn't the main thing in this story. The main thing of this story is Rahab's truth, the truth that she has come to believe and to cling to and to put all of her stakes in as if her life depended on it. So we get to that part of the story now. It's worth reading again. So picking up in verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. What can we learn here about what Rahab knows and believes? She knew and she believed that God saves that's really important for us to see uh, if we wonder whether or not uh, we're worthy of being included in heaven's roll call, if we're worthy to be welcomed into heaven. Worthy has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with the gospel. No one is beyond the reach of God's mercy when they cling by faith to the God who saves. Rahab shows here that she knew and believed God saves. She's seen the great salvation moment of God's people. In the Old Testament, Rahab tells the spies, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. What is she talking about here? She's talking about the Exodus. The Exodus is the number one salvation event in the Old Testament, particularly at this moment in time, in this conversation. God's people Israel had been enslaved in Egypt, but their cries reached the Lord their God. He heard their cries and he didn't forget them. He rescued them when they were helpless to help themselves. It's the Old Testament paradigm for salvation. You want to know what saving looks like, what our God saves looks like? Well, in the Old Testament, you look at the Exodus. 
This is what salvation looks like. God coming to rescue his own out of slavery and death. The God of help helping the helpless. That's salvation. Maybe you felt helpless to, hear, uh, helpless to help yourself um, at times in your life. Maybe you still feel helpless to help yourself. So this kind of news, it strikes a chord with you. And the Exodus is supposed to strike that chord with you. It's this definitive moment of salvation in the Old Testament. God delivering his people and giving them freedom. For us, living on this side of the cross, of course, we look at the cross and we understand and believe what Jesus did to set us free from sin and death. We know that the freedom of the Exodus pointed to this freedom all along. Jesus defines salvation in terms of freedom for sinners. What did he say? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's the remarkable thing about the gospel. Freedom, when we could not free ourselves. Help, when we were helpless to help ourselves. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just this initial freedom. The gospel is more than that. I think we see it in what Rahab describes as far as her belief about God. What does Rahab go on to say? We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, that initial freedom, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. What's happening here? Well, Rahab hasn't just been gripped with God's initial rescue of his people. She's been gripped by God's ongoing protection and his prospering his people with victory over their enemies, victory over their enemies as they go into the promised land of Canaan, making them triumph as he leads them to their promised home, this ongoing work of God on behalf of his people. Maybe that's the case for you. Maybe as you came to know the Lord or as you're coming to know the Lord, uh, you've seen how the gospel changes people, how the gospel isn't just one thing that happens in one moment. Uh, The salvation that we receive from God isn't just the entryway to the Christian life, but God continues to save and protect his people. You've seen friends, maybe family members, coworkers experience radical victory over things that they thought they would never have victory over. You've seen God continue to lead them through hardship, yet maintaining them in the palm of his hand. You felt that in your own life. The gospel isn't just the front door of the Christian life. We live every day in the good news of rescue in Jesus. And Rahab sees this God who not only sets his people free, but continues with them, freeing them, protecting them, prospering them. That's what's going on in Rahab's mind here. She's been thoroughly convinced of the power of God to save, so much so that she says, a great fear has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear before you. Everyone's knees are knocking before the God of Israel. And she tells despise why that is. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. This is what Rahab has come to believe. Here's this woman who has a a very messy life who has believed in a God who saves. She's seen his power and she is in effect bowing the knee to the one true and living God. It's shocking, but that's the scandal of God's grace. No one is out of the reach of God's mercy when they cling by faith to the God who saves. So Rahab knew and believed God saves, but that's actually not enough. And the story goes further. Rahab cries out for mercy to the God who saves. Knowing and believing isn't enough. The Bible says that even the demons believe and tremble. Their knees knock before the God of heaven and earth just like everyone in Jericho. 
Knowing and believing isn't enough. What is needed then to be saved? How does one go beyond knowing and believing to actually being rescued by Jesus? Well, Rahab says, now then, let's get to the point she's saying. I know your God is mighty to save. I know he's the God in heaven above and on earth below. So here's what I'm asking. Show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. She knows the Lord is mighty to destroy, but she gets the whole picture. It's interesting, isn't it? Rahab doesn't yet know that the walls of Jericho are going to come tumbling down, as we put it so uh, neatly and, and politely in the song. Uh, the t- walls are going to come tumbling down, but there will be no- nothing cute like the children's song in this battle. Uh, we live in earthquake country here, right? Uh, we know uh, what this might have looked like. Um, we've seen other disasters in our country, hurricanes, Hurricane Ian most recently, uh, where I'm from in Kansas, EF5 tornadoes, massive earthquakes around the world, raging fires threatening our valley. None of that, and not even the sacking of Jericho, when those walls come tumbling down, can hold a candle to what is in store for the wicked who do not bow the knee to the God who saves. The destruction that awaited Rahab in her house in the wall is a good picture. It's a good description of the destruction that awaits everyone who refuses to bow their knee to King Jesus and to plead his mercy and grace to save them. Revelation 20, starting in verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Where can we turn to escape the judgment that's coming? How can we have our names written in this book, in the Lamb's book of life? We have to take a page from this prostitute living in Jericho who has known and believed that God saves and cries out to God for salvation. We have to run to Jesus and plead that our names be written in his book of life. There's something else I want to point out here. When Rahab says, show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you, I don't think we should take this as, I did something good for you, now you do something good for me. I think there's a better picture of the gospel here. The spies don't show her the gospel very well. They make it very transactional. Okay, you keep your mouth shut and then we'll hold up our end of the bargain. Uh, But what Rahab is saying here is, I've risked my neck for the Lord's cause because I believe. She's showing her faith in her works. I'm going out of a limb because I believe. This is true living, active, saving faith. Hebrews 11.31, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. This is the obedience of faith, turning it all over to God for salvation. You see her faith in what she does. By faith, Rahab. She's been willing to put it all on the line, being willing to be cast out, to be ostracized, to be alienated, to be shunned, to be executed, 
by the king of Jericho for helping these spies. That's faith. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have that kind of faith? Do we just have I know and believe in the sense of I, I, I believe these things are true, but is it more than that? Have we actually placed our faith in Christ in such a way that we are willing to put it all on the line and walk and follow Jesus. That's the kind of faith Hebrews describes to us. A faith like Moses, the one who led the people out of Exodus because he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. A faith like Abraham, when God told him, sacrifice your son to me, a test for his faith, but Abraham was willing to do so, knowing that God could bring Isaac back from the dead. That kind of a faith. A faith like Rahab, willing to risk her life because she believes and she knows that God can show her kindness. And she cries out for that kindness. She's crying out with words and repentance to the Lord. She's bowing in humility, recognizing that without the favor of the Lord, without him showing his kindness, there is no hope for her. Our faith needs to be modeled after this kind of faith. This is the kind of faith that saves. The faith that cries out, save me, show kindness to me. Rahab knows that salvation won't come from within the sturdy walls of Jericho, and it won't come from within herself. It's only going to come from the outside as a gift, as grace received by faith. I want to go back to that story I opened with about big man and Len. Uh, in Lewis's story from The Great Divorce, I think Lewis really nailed it. Um, Len, the murderer, is a reminder of the scandalous grace of the cross. Someone who just shouldn't find mercy. Just like Rahab, a Canaanite, outside of God's chosen people, his nation, uh, a prostitute living a life that is a mess, uh, by any human standard, uh, just doesn't measure up to find mercy. But that's the scandal of the cross. That's the grace that we celebrate in the cross. None of us should be here. None of us should receive God's mercy for anything that we are in ourselves. So what's the catch? Why are Len and Rahab and you and me, unworthy as we are, written in the Lamb's book of life? Well, the Bible tells us that no one deserves to be written in the book. Uh, remember the story's ending. We read how the story ends. Uh, the spies assure Rahab that she will be spared they assure her that uh, as long as she doesn't rat them out, she'll be spared. She's told to, stop, to tie this scarlet cord in the window. Uh, and a lot of people see that scarlet crimson thorn and they think, ooh, it's a red thread. This must be red like the color of Jesus' blood. That must be where Jesus is in the story. I think that's kind of a stretch. This may have well have been a blue thread, a green thread, a sheet hanging out the window. I don't think that's the point, but I do think we see Jesus in this thread hanging out the window. Here's the point and how we get to Jesus from it. The scarlet cord in the window, waving out of Rahab's window in the desert sun, it serves as a bold exclamation point here at the end of her story of her faith, of faith clinging to the promise. Faith clinging to the promise of rescue and redemption. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Why did she welcome them? Hebrews tells us, by faith. That thread hanging out of her window, by faith. She knew of, believed in, and cried out for mercy to the God who saves. And that is where she placed her faith. 
We know that that salvation ultimately comes in Jesus. This cord out of the window is a witness to this coming promise of rescue, ultimately fulfilled for all who cling by faith to Jesus in him. So why do people like Len and Rahab end up in heaven? To the shock and chagrin of people like big man, or maybe people like us when we're being a little self-righteous and we think that we're better than others. Um, Big man's problem in Lewis' story, he says, I only want my rights. Have you ever felt that? I only, I don't, I'm not looking for anyone's bleeding charity, he says. And Len the murderer says, then do. Ask at once for the bleeding charity. Everything here is for the asking and nothing can be bought. Nothing can be bought. Len's telling you today, just ask for the bleeding charity. Rahab, with her bold and unlikely story of faith, is telling you, ask for that mercy. Plead for that kindness. Cry out to the Lord to show you his love and kindness. At the end of the day, that's what we see in this story of Rahab. We see the scandalous grace of the cross, and we may as well say the scandalous grace of Christmas too. The angel said to Joseph, you call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Paul would say in Titus 3, but when the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared in that baby born in Bethlehem, the baby whose name was Jesus, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. No one is out of the reach of God's mercy, not you, not me, when we cling by faith to the God who saves. That's what Rahab's story shows us. Maybe she's a surprising name in the family tree of our Savior, but she is a remarkable woman whose faith has much to teach us about seeing who God is, knowing and believing who he is, but more than that, crying out for mercy to the God who has shown grace to sinners in need of saving. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for showing us your power to save. In this story of this most unlikely candidate in the genealogy of Jesus, Rahab, who knew your power and cried out for your mercy. Give us hearts that turn to you, that know and believe and cry out for mercy in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.